Welcome to The Cut on Tuesdays on Thursdays. I'm Stella Bugby, Editor-in-Chief of The Cut. Tumble out of bed and I stumble to the kitchen Pour myself a cup of ambition And yawn and stretch and try to come to life This is How I Get It Done, the Cut series about ambitious women and the way they live. How they deal with their inboxes, people's feelings, their grocery shopping, their morning routines. What do they know that we don't? What do they do that we can steal? It's part advice column, part love letter, part voyeurism. Today we're talking to journalist Rukmini Kalamaki. She's a foreign correspondent who reports on Islamic extremism for The New York Times. She's also the host of the podcast Caliphate. It's a devastating series about the realities of life under ISIS. I spoke to Rukmini earlier this month, just after she'd returned from a reporting trip to Syria. I wanted to know, what's it like to report on a group that brags about murdering journalists? So thank you so much for thank being you. here with me. Thank you. I love doing this. So you're here in New York with I me am. right now. Uh, normally, you're not, right? <laughs> Certainly recently, I haven't been. That's <laughs> You've true. been traveling a lot. I've been traveling a lot, yeah. Um, when you're on the road, what's your life like? What's your day like? Oh, God, it's just uh, it's just completely chaotic, depending on what we're covering. Uh, these last, for, for 21 days before I came back last week, uh, I was in Syria, and we were covering the the operation to take back the last village under ISIS control. When I went in, the area that was under ISIS control was the size of Central Park. So we we rushed to get there. I mean, it was just this, you know, hair-tearing exercise to get there because I thought it was going to fall to the point where I tried to get the photographer who was coming with me to drop the assignment that he was currently on <laughs> um, in order to hurry up and, and, and get there faster. And then we got there, and then nothing happened. Uh, and and ISIS still holds this area. It's a little bit smaller than when we first got there. But, um, but basically, the operation stalled because there were thousands and thousands of ISIS families inside there, women and children, mm. who are technically described as civilians, right. even though the women, of course, joined willingly for the most part uh but under international norms you can't you you can't bomb an area that has 15 20,000 people uh in it um if if they happen to be women and children um and uh we ended up at a military base that was about 40 miles from the from the front lines um and then we were one of many crews that were negotiating access to get to the front line um, and then pulling back out, uh, going out into the desert, waiting to see where, where the ISIS families were being brought, rushing to see if we could interview them before they were taken away, um, going to the refugee camps where where they were being triaged. Wow. So you have no schedule on a 21-day on a, on a um assignment like that. There is no semblance of normalcy. Right. Uh, I mean, the schedule is getting the story. Um, And I I go in with with story targets that become more refined as as the time passes. Um, And then everything is oriented around trying to trying to nail those down. So how do you even eat on a day like that? On a a typical Uh, day? Well, what I I do is I buy a Tupperware uh, box, a big one, full of stuff um tuna fish cans uh uh pringles um <laughs> uh 
snacks, granola bars, and that's always in the back of my car. So take me through like one of these days on your 21 day stint. You you wake up and you're in a hotel? No, we're at a we're basically at a base um with we were at a base with the SDF, which is the Syrian Democratic Forces. This is the American-backed militia that is essentially doing the dirty work of, of fighting ISIS on the ground. They had set up a base that was 40 miles from the front lines, and it was essentially just a, a, a building at a former oil installation. They had a very strict uh, gender segregation code, <laughs> so I could not sleep in the same room as my team who were men, and I was instead in a room for women. So I was there with, initially, uh, Jana Andert, who's uh, a freelancer for Channel 4, and then Josie Enser, who works for The Telegraph, and um, a rotating cast of female journalists who were spending the night in this room. And we had these thin mattresses on the floor. (laughs) You would leave in the morning to go do your work, and you wouldn't know at night if you would come back and you would still have your spot. (laughs) Um, So people were leaving like their suitcases on top of these mattresses to try to, you know, maintain their their spot. At a certain point, there were so many reporters that showed up that there was a kind of a free-for-all for the blankets. <laughs> there weren't enough blankets. People were, people were, basically, were basically stealing each other's blankets. Um, and, and, and you're mostly doing day trips where you're being taken in a Humvee in an armored car to near-ish the front the, the the what they call the zero line and doing what reporting you can and then coming back and collecting your notes and and try to file how do you even begin to pack for a trip like that like did you need yeah. to bring a blanket did you know that <laughs> uh, i i mean I've, I've actually i've done these embeds enough times now that i that i that i have a kit that that basically stays in a rock um it consists of my flak jacket my helmet that's one bag because it's very heavy. Uh, and then I have a second bag that has a sleeping bag. It has a sheet because typically these mattresses are pretty dirty. And so you're, you want to have something between you and it. Um, uh, baby wipes. Uh, uh, soap uh, in, a, in an easily... You don't want the, the type of soap that has the, the plunger um, because those are impossible to shut when you're moving around. You want something with, with a hard seal, uh, a towel, uh, and just, you know, the basics that you need to sort of be able to wash yourself in a camping-like situation when you're on the move. How long did it take you to learn that set of tricks that go back? <laughs> I, How many years? In my, <laughs> on my iPhone, I have, in, in my notes, I have a note that is head, that is headlined things i forget on trips <laughs> because trip after trip i keep on forgetting the same stuff uh uh earplugs um uh tylenol pm when i can't fall asleep you know these these are things that you literally cannot get in these in these areas but um uh what else let's see <laughs> metamucil i'm sorry because you get backed <laughs> up on trips <laughs> Tylenol PM. This list has gotten more and more refined, uh, and and I, I I now have. I mean, these bags basically don't get don't they get washed and they get repacked, but they don't get taken apart when I come home. They they stay together. So that's your that's a your sort of working day to day. What is it like when you come back 
to America, to your house in New York City? How do you reacclimate? I come to New York and I always think to myself, oh, you know what? I could take a class in New York. There's so many interesting things I could learn. I could, you know, go to the new school. I could go maybe to the Metropolitan. And then I never end up doing it because I'm always plotting the next trip, you know, plotting the next thing. Do you exercise? Yes, yes, I do. That's a big big thing. I have um, a boot camp that I go to with a couple of girlfriends at the New York Times. Um, there's a park near me and I go and I go running there with my dogs. Oh, tell me about your dogs. I have two dogs, a Rhodesian Ridgeback who, feature, who features on Caliphate <laughs> uh, and a Cocker Spaniel. <laughs> and who takes care of your dogs when you're gone? My husband. And is, how is it coming back to your husband after a 21 day like the 21 days is a long time is that i'm assuming not the longest it's not the longest i think we've both agreed that we do we do best on the two-week trip um 21 days was not the full trip this was a five-week trip because I, i i was in iraq before and after um but uh but i think a month is starting to push it does he worry about you he does he does but he does it in a in a really sweet way where he doesn't in general, he he hasn't tried to stop me from doing what I do. He's extremely uh, he's extremely proud of what I do, in a touching way. You know, like really, I feel so supported by him. And we've been together now since two thousand seven. So that's what twelve years. Uh, only, I think, three times has he asked me to come home, and has he asked me not to do a specific thing that I was trying to do. And that's kind of a veto that I've given him, you know, like when he, he uses it so infrequently that when when he really feels this scares me too much, um, I have always respected that and just said, OK, I'm coming home. You once told us that um, who you choose as a partner is almost more important than what you do as a job. Do you want to elaborate on that a little? Sure. I mean, I think, you know, I think so many women end up um, compromising on their dreams based on the partners they end up with. It's just what I see around me. And, um, you know, I, I remember these vibrant uh, and and uh, ambitious women that I was in college with, and we meet up now, and, and I see how their wings have been clipped, you know, and they, they, they might disagree with me. Perhaps I am adding a layer of judgment that they don't have um, towards themselves. But what I see is that is that they ended up in relationships with people who valued their own ambition more than that of their spouse. And invariably, they ended up picking up the slack and doing more of the childcare, more of the, 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 the duties at home, and ended up, you know, letting go of their dreams as a result of that. And I think it's very rare to find, as a woman, many men have found partners that that support them. I think it's it's hard as a woman to find somebody who they'll say they do, <laughs> right? They'll 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 that'll be the rhetoric that you hear, but do they actually? Is your husband as ambitious as you are? No, no. Do you think it's possible to have two people in a relationship with equal levels of ambition? I, I mean, I've seen examples of it. Um, my husband is um, is ambitious in a different way. I mean, he's he's a personal trainer. He's really proud of the clients he takes care of. But it's not these, you know, these castles in the sky that I'm sort of trying to build. Um, but at the same time, he's not in any way threatened by that. And I find that to be quite rare. 
Um, I, you know, I've every man that I've dated claimed to be a feminist, but <laughs> when we got right down to it, um, uh, oftentimes there was strain in in previous relationships, and it came down to a, a feeling of competition, where I was somehow I, I was somehow emasculating them, I was somehow outdoing them, and um, and it wasn't okay. Is this something you guys? When you're in that women's quarters and it's all the female reporters, is this something that you guys ever talk about? Do you guys talk to each other? Huh. Um, I can't say I have so specifically, uh, but but I, I get asked it all the time. I, I think people assume I must be single, and then they're they're surprised to find out that I've been in a committed relationship for twelve years. Um, and that there is a man, <laughs> there is a man out there that somehow that somehow is okay with what I do. <laughs> um, L- Lindsay Adario, who's one of my great, you know, role models, and 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 I consider her a friend. Um, she and I have spoken uh, about this, and I believe there's a similar dynamic in her relationship uh, with Paul that that I have with Michael, um, where they are just these these unique and and really special men who are incredibly proud of their spouses and incredibly proud of what we have achieved. Have you and your husband ever actually just sat down and discussed, I'm more ambitious than you are, I need more support than you? Like, What are those conversations like? Not really. I mean, I think we, we met each other this way, you know, and this was the, the moment when, you know, I realized that my then boyfriend was flirting with me um, was sort of two weeks after we met and I went on a trip to Guinea-Bissau in um, in West Africa and he's texting me like, you know, like 20 times a day asking me like very, you know, very sort of unimportant questions and I just realized, you know, this person wants to be in touch with me. Um, and so the, from the get-go, this was, this was our normal. It was always me coming and going and him being at home um and and him being okay with it and and i have to say i don't think i could do this on the other side i don't think i could be him i think i'm far too insecure to have a partner who is traveling the world who is out of touch sometimes for you know hours sometimes days depending on the network i don't think i could handle it so i think it's a it's a testimony to what a big person he is that he's able to do that when did you realize you couldn't handle it? I mean, the few times that he's gone on a trip and I'm just like, you know, like to me, the house suddenly feels so empty and, um, and you know, I'm kind of freaked out because I can't reach him. And, and then I realized that, that this is what he goes through every single time that I'm gone. Yeah. Before him, boyfriends that mm-hmm. you'd had, had they been understanding or had they been threatened? Before him, so, so my career really, really ramped up into the mode it's in now when I got to Africa. And um, and I met Michael sort of two weeks after I, I I moved to Africa. Before that, I kept on trying to date people that were in my profession. I I I don't think I was doing it even consciously, but I was dating photographers, um, other reporters, and I kept thinking that I need somebody who is in the same field as me, so that we're somehow intersecting in the field. That was a disaster. <laughs> I mean, just to try to be you know to try to be with your partner on assignment was like awful awful you know then all of the stress of work and the stress of a romantic relationship um colliding but um but long before that you know like in college my college boyfriend 
I, I just noticed that when I would get an award or even when I get a good grade, he would he he would praise me and he would be like, oh, that's great or whatever. But I could just always feel that there was there was a little bit of something behind it where he wasn't completely happy that that I was outdoing him at something. Coming up, Rukmini tells us the dangerous places her ambition has put her and the one thing she has to do every day to stay sane. That's after the break. Welcome back to The Cut on Tuesdays on Thursdays. I'm talking with journalist Rukmini Kalamaki. She now covers Islamic extremism for The New York Times, but she's been on this beat since 2007, when she started covering al-Qaeda as West Africa Bureau Chief for the Associated Press. I asked her if her ambition ever took her to dangerous places. I think every time that you're going close to these, these areas of hostility and danger, there's always this slippery slope where you start getting closer and closer in the service of a story. And you think to yourself, if I can just go to the front line one more time, if I can just go a little bit closer, if I can just go to that rooftop, if I can just go around that bend, um, and and you keep thinking um, that you'll get something better. And that's where it helps to have a strong newsroom, um, as we have at the Times. I now, it, it, ever since the rise of ISIS uh, in Iraq and Syria, I have almost always traveled with a security advisor, which was which is a new experience for me. That you know, for ten for for seven years in West and Central Africa, in areas that were at times equally dangerous, I never had uh, that benefit. But now you, ha- but now there is a security structure, and so you have an extra person who is sitting there, reminding you. Not worth it, you know. Let's Don't not go do, around let, that corner. Let's not do that again. What's the what's the most dangerous situation you've been in recently? Well, on this trip to Syria, um, uh, the 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 access to the front line was incredibly restricted by the militia that was that was doing the fighting, um, and they kept on saying that you know they're they're close to the end of this epic battle that they've now been fighting for four and a half years against ISIS that um, and they were just aware of the 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 somewhat sad reality that if a Western journalist is injured or or killed, that would become a news story mm. and that would very much take away from what they are trying to tell the world, which is that they themselves, with in, in an enormous sacrifice of their own blood, have been able to take back these territories from the world's, possibly the world's most dangerous terrorist group. So um, m- much of the early period that we were there, we were constantly, you know, negotiating and to the point of almost haranguing these commanders, trying to get more access, more access, more access. And in the middle of our trip, they finally agreed to let us go and overnight um, near the front line. So we were in in a base that was just a few kilometers, like less than a mile probably, from the actual, what they call the zero line. And that morning, um, we got up. Uh, I was with Ivor Prickett, who's, um, who's, who's, a, who's a photographer for the New York Times, our security advisor, our translator. And we got into our car and we advanced to... A meeting point where we were with the militia as they were getting ready to, to, you know, prepare for the operation, and I saw a pickup truck um, take off 
with two colleagues. Uh, one of them was Gabriele, who's uh, a photojournalist from from Italy. And based on the direction that they were going, we realized that they were they were they were being given access to a more forward position than we were being given. So we were sitting there with the commander, and Ivor and I were just you know were upset, and we were <laughs> we were arguing very um, strongly that this is unfair. That you know why is the New York Times not being allowed to go? And um, and he was resisting, and he finally was starting to was starting to to agree that he would take us more forward in the in the same direction that they had gone and we were having that very discussion when suddenly um we saw these trucks screaming back you know from the same direction and we started hearing chatter on the radio that our translator was translating saying a journalist has been injured a journalist has been first it was a journalist has been killed a journalist has been injured we didn't know what what was happening and um the trucks came back um and what they had brought back was the helmet and the jacket of this photojournalist who had been injured in an RPG attack. It was horrific. It was the the, the helmet was full of blood. Um, the jacket was full of holes from the shrapnel. And um, and we had no idea what his situation was. And so what's going through your mind when you see the helmet? Are you filled with adrenaline? Are you filled with fear? Are you filled with oh, relief God. and I'm just, I'm, I, I was filled with, filled with dread for what had happened to him. I was, I was, I was so scared that the reports that we were getting on the ground that he had lost his eye were true. And he's a photojournalist, you know. Is he alive? So he was taken to Baghdad. We were told that he had lost his eye, and thank God, after about I think he spent almost a week in surgery, um, he somehow managed to come out both alive and with his sight. And this is the picture that that his colleagues sent us when he got back to Rome. Wow. You know, in this work you have you have this type of these type of coincidences that happen, you know, all the time. I don't know that that we would have been taken to the same spot where they were going. But but there are always these, you know, these moments where you're you're pushing against the edge, trying to get what you what you think is reasonable in that in that moment. Um, and I was reminded again that you can't always read the terrain correctly. I guess one one of the things that I think all of us wonder is how you manage the stress of this beat. It's a sad <laughs> beat. It's an emotional beat. What do oh, you do? Oh, gosh. Um, people ask me this all the time, and, and I don't want to sound callous, but it doesn't upset me in the way that people, I think, think it should. And... I don't completely have a good reason as to why. Um, I, I guess what has happened is I've been covering it for so long that the aspects of the crimes, the horrific things that this group does, um, I've been able to sort of separate them from the emotion of of what <clears throat> of what those crimes are and look at them in an analytic in an analytical fashion. Where that broke down for me is when I was covering uh, the rapes of the Yazidi women. Mm-hmm. That was among the most difficult reporting I've done. Um, Do you want to describe that for someone who yeah. might not have listened to it? Yeah. So in in 2014, uh, ISIS invaded a place called Sinjar Mountain in northern Iraq. This is the ancestral homeland of an ethnic group called the Yazidis, who practice their own unique religion that is not Muslim. Um, it's it's their own faith with their own um, with their own theology, their own scripture. And uh, in ISIS's terminology, they were not just infidels, uh, 
They were also not people of the book, people of the book being Christians and Jews. They are people without a written um, testimony of their of their faith. And that put them in uh, in an area of theological jeopardy uh, that in ISIS's rhetoric allowed them to be enslaved. Mm. Um, and so they enslaved they, they literally enslaved the women and 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 began passing them around as sex objects. Um, and when you interview these young women, you know, these 15, 16 year old girls, women in their 20s, women in their 30s, who were passed between seven, eight, nine men. It's just, it's just devastating. It's just so awful to hear what they went through. Many of them told me that at a certain point, when the despair set in, um, and when they when they began to think, I'm never going to get out of here, many of them tried to take their own lives. You know, they they talked about how at a certain point ISIS made a new rule that they weren't allowed to have scarves because they were using their scarves to try to hang themselves. Um, I don't frequently cry, you know, in just in general, um, but I I wept in these interviews um, with them, you know, because it's just so horribly unfair what happened to them. And then when you left them, how long did that sadness and that stress stay with you? I mean, I can I can tap into it, at, you know, at any point of the day if I just spend time thinking about it. I've always been, <laughs> I've always been a little bit shocked that the Yazidi issue didn't get, in my opinion, the type of international traction um, that things like like the kidnapping of the Jabuk girls in Nigeria did. Just. For people who may not be totally familiar with sure. the story of the Nigerian girls, can yes. you just lay that out? In 2014, um, 276 girls from from the town of Chibuk were kidnapped in Borno State in Nigeria by Boko Haram, uh, a terrorist group that ended up pledging allegiance uh, to ISIS. They were enslaved by the group, but they but they very quickly became a trending hashtag, bring back our girls. Even even Michelle Obama ended up posing with a picture of a white piece of paper that said hashtag bring back our girls. And they were eventually brought back as, as a result of this collective pressure that the world put on the Nigerian state. There was never a hashtag bring back our girls for the Yazidis. Why do you think that was? I think it's a reflection of the fact that Nigeria is an English-speaking country. Mm. Um, and so educated people in Nigeria have connections to the U.S., have connections to England um, that the Yazidis in general don't have. Uh, educated Yazidis speak Arabic. Not that many speak English. It's actually quite hard to even find translators there that are, that are native Yazidis. And so I think part of it was you know, a lack of enfranchisement in, in the political process that has changed now with with the brave Nadia Murad, who allowed herself to become a symbol, you know, of her people at, at great personal cost. I think she has, you know, weathered enormous trauma, um, both from what she went through uh, under ISIS and as a result of the attacks that she has, she has faced from ISIS as a result of her, of her activism. Are you able to advocate ever for the stories that you wish were bigger stories or once you report them, are they out of your hands? <laughs> you know, um, when I the, the first Yazidi story that I did, which was in 2015, and it was 
it was, I would say, the first story that that made clear that this wasn't just some chaotic rape um, scenario. There had been plenty of stories uh, from when they were kidnapped in August of 2014 until I published my piece where women were coming out of ISIS-held territory and saying, I'd been raped. But it wasn't clear until, until I believe I published my piece, that this was, this was a theology of slavery. This was something that was buried inside their ideology. They had put out religious tracts explaining this. They had, they had prepared for this with dormitories where they had utensils and plates and things waiting for the women to be, to be brought in. They had created markets, you know, to be able to sell them. They had judges who had, who had um, pre-printed tr- contracts for the sale of Yazidi girls. So this was something that was, that, that was not some, it wasn't some criminal act that you know that a bunch of men, um, who want you know, a bunch of men just wanted to to rape a bunch of women. This was a pre-planned, systematic enslavement of a specific people. Um, yeah, and um, and that story when it ran uh, was the most clicked-on story for that year in 2015 of of the stories that were published by the Foreign Desk of the New York Times. How is being a woman investigative reporter different in terms of the way that people that you're trying to interview interact with you? You know, in general, I have I have found that in the field, my gender has actually helped me. I am these days I'm working mostly in Arab societies where, for example, men do not have access to to the female gender. Or if they do, it's very strained. I can go and sit down with a Yazidi rape victim, and as a woman, I can sit across from her. I can tell her my mother was a rape victim. This is something that is very personal in our in our family. As a woman, this is something that I have always feared, um, and I can relate to them through our shared gender. Where I found that my my gender has has hurt me is is ironically in New York, um, where uh, it, with with Western colleagues. That's where that's where the difference is felt to me the most. Can you it's elaborate when, on that? It's when you're on a conference call and um, and you're the person that knows the most about ISIS on that conference call, but male colleagues who know perhaps less are much louder, uh, interrupt, um, speak over you, uh, and and then your options are to either raise your voice, which is which is not a very good look, I think, for women, unfortunately. Um, or to be silent and be, you know, sort of shunted to one side. What do you do in that situation? <laughs> I mean, I do all sorts of things. Uh, recently, I've started, in the last couple of years, when I have a major conference call, I've started to stay at home rather than having it be in a, in a meeting room where many of your colleagues are with you. I find that if I'm at home and I'm, I'm on speakerphone and you're just talking into a phone, you don't have to actually look people in the eye, it's easier to... To just be more confident. So, um, what's what's one thing? <laughs> <laughs> one thing. One thing um, that you have to do every day to stay sane. I have to talk to my husband. That's a big one. I pray every day. Um, I grew up in a in in a household that prays, and uh, and I say a prayer before I go to sleep. Um, just asking for protection and essentially thanking the universe for 
the good things in my life. Do you have any mantras? I do, but they're so embarrassing, Stella. <laughs> I can't possibly share them. You can. Uh, no, you can. no. Are they like yeah, basic? They're, like they're um, very like you're enough. Like, <laughs> they're very silly and very you know yeah yeah. I'd be too self conscious to share them. But do you say them to yourself on a regular basis? I, ha- I have. I basically every year, um, uh, I do a retreat around the new year, and I write down my goals for the year. And then I write a series of affirmations that I write in sort of poetic language um, with a rhythm to it. And then I say these affirmations as I'm walking to the bus every day. Um, so, yeah. And I typically have way too many. <laughs> like, like if, 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 I, if, I was to tell, if I was to say all my affirmations, like it would take my entire bus ride from, from the suburb where I live to, um, you know, to Port Authority. Uh, and they end up getting honed down as the year goes, goes on. Um, typically one related to my work and typically one related to my personal life. Is there something that you wish you could stop doing? Something I wish I could stop doing. Like a personality trait. I procrastinate way too much. God, I would be so much happier if I could just do my work when I'm supposed to do my work. <laughs> you know, rather than rather than having to have this entire build up <laughs> to get like some project done. I actually learned uh, when I was covering the Mosul battle that I work incredibly well in a moving car. <laughs> um, and you know, we were we we had at that point uh, the, the the front line was about two and a half, three hours away from the city of Erbil, which was considered safe. So we were going back and forth every day. So I'd have five hours in the car and I would get so much done. You know, I'd just be sitting there in the, in the, in the passenger seat. Um, we had a driver. Uh, my colleague was sitting next to me. I would just put in my earphones and it was almost like, like, you know, those blinders they put on a, on a, on a racehorse. That's what it felt like. You know, it felt my, my internet was not working because we were out in the, you know, in the boonies. Um, it was hard for people to call me as a result. So I couldn't do Twitter. I couldn't do Facebook. I couldn't do Instagram. And in that space of just being forced to sit there with nothing else to do, I would get my work done. And so I'm embarrassed to say that, like, one of the biggest pieces I've done, I I finished it almost entirely on on the bus going back and forth to DC <laughs> where I would, you know, I would book a trip to go see a source. And instead of taking the train, because that's too quick, I would take the bus, which would take five hours <laughs> and I would get, you know, a, an amazing five hour stretch of work done that day. See my source, come back the next day. Is it hard to sleep knowing that you could be missing a story? I mean, sometimes. Yeah. What do you do? Yeah. With that anxiety, sleep has always. If if there's one part of my life that has suffered the most as a result of this work, sleep is the sleep is the one. I have struggled with insomnia for years. I've tried all sorts of like sleep hygiene things. Some um, insomnia induced by the work, or yeah, and just by the, the, the constantness, schedule? the constantness, you know, of it. Do you read before bed? I used to, uh, and I'm trying to again. I have a stack of books, you know, but you know, like TV has gotten so good. <laughs> Netflix and Hulu, and you know, just these like addictive shows. Um, Can you watch shows when you're on the bases? Or uh, I, I, I have, and I do, and I end up watching. I end up chain watching the same stupid shows. Just this is so embarrassing, but I, I love Vanderpump Rules. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
I know, you know, I saw I saw an interview that Dean Becke, the editor-in-chief of the New York Times, gave where he's like reading poetry at night and he's reading, you know, Ulysses and all of these like really highbrow things. And I'm like, Jason, I'm like, I've just admitted that I'm watching Vanderpump Rules. Do you believe him? <laughs> Does the investigative reporter and you believe that he's reading Ulysses before bed? I'm going to take the fifth. <laughs> okay, fair. Thanks so much for coming today. It's my pleasure, Stella. That's it for this week's show. We'll see you next Tuesday. This episode was produced by Chris Neary, Olivia Natt, and Kimmy Regler. It was edited by Lynn Levy. Mixing by Sam Baer. Our theme song is 9 to 5 by the one and only Dolly Parton. The Cut on Tuesdays is a production of Gimlet Media and The Cut. No, no.